0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to The Journey. It's a pleasure to be with you. If this is your first time, as Gary said, my name is Joel. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, today we're doing a new series. Uh, we're calling it Road Trip. Usually what we like to do during the summer is we try to take a look at one theme that we can take a look for a while. So basically, we're going to be on this for the next, I think, nine weeks, carry us through the whole summer. And this, this year, the, the, the theme is Road Trips. Um, So let me start asking you this question, have you ever had, like, what's the coolest thing that you've ever had happen to you while on a road trip? Tell you my story. Um, I'm really from Ecuador, some of you, if the accent didn't give it away. Um, And uh, when I was in college, uh, it was some holiday weekend, my mom and my sister had gone to visit one of my mom's sister in Cuenca. Cuenca is this... Beautiful town, kind of like up in like the mountainous region of Ecuador. Uh, really, really nice. like actually a lot of Americans like to retire to Cuenca because of you know the the nice weather and location and cheaper cost of living. I may or may not have a secret folder called The Journey Ecuador La Jornada where I talk enough of you into retiring to Ecuador and Chad sends me out to plant a church and that's my retirement. But you know, that's neither here nor there. But if that sounds like something that's interesting to you, come see me after the service. I know we have like a good 20 years to figure that. out. Anyway, uh, this is kind of like the, the, Google, uh, the Google Maps of a of road. So like, you know, that when you get to like the little uh, mountainous region, that's kind of like where you start literally going up up, up mountain. At that time, we drove this beat-up Ford Escort from, like, the 80s. i but not too much. And the thing about that car was, that like, if you were, like, you know, driving it past its normal, you know, comfortable conditions, it would start, like, stalling out and stuff. The car starts overheating and kind of, like, stops moving halfway up the mountains. 2 a.m., middle of nowhere. It's me, my dad, and a cousin of mine. And my dad said, guys, you're going to have to push. It's like, a manual gear so you can supposedly, like, pushing to into keep going. 2 a.m., my dad's kind of, like, pushing the car by the wheel, and me and my cousin are, like, going up. Uh, we're not getting that much farther ahead. And at some point, my cousin said, hey, guys, you should look at the sky. And we look up, and to this day, I don't think I've ever had a more beautiful sight of a sky completely, completely full of stars. And we stay there just... Forgot about the car. We're sitting there it, it for a good 10 minutes just looking at this incredibly beautiful sight. I always kind of like have this, this memory of road trips. Road trips are these situations, these moments that sometimes take us out of our ordinary setting and that sometimes open us up to um, different things to happen, right? Like if there's so many movies about that. And actually, when you look at the Bible, you're going to see in the Bible story after story of people having encounters with God while on the road. And their encounters is actually are so powerful, they completely change their lives, not only on that trip, but going forward the rest of their lives. That's what we're, that we're going to be working on uh, this summer. And today, I want to start with a story in the book of Genesis. So if you want to turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 28, I'm going to start reading on verse 10. This is Jacob's dream at Bethel. It says, Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled down Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stopped there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to the heaven and saw so the angels of God going up and down the stairway, at the top of the stairway stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. It will spread out in all directions, to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything i have promised you this is the word of the lord would you pray with me as we start this time dear god we believe that you speak to us in all sorts of settings and road trips and the church services and my prayer is that this morning you would speak to us through your word that there are things in here that your spirit wants to say to our spirit that will transform us and change us. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit has to say. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Jacob and his brother Esau are the children of Isaac and Isaac has always shown predilection or preference to Esau. Esau is a favorite kid. Jacob comes after him, and he's kind of like the guy that, you know, doesn't hang out with that too much. And at some point in the story, uh, his mom and him come up with this plan to trick Isaac into giving Jacob the firstborn blessing, which it's literally just like a blessing, a prayer that that, that, that prays over the son. And you would think to yourself, get over yourself what's a big deal but but you have to understand at that point that means that you are kind of like the one that will inherit all of God's favor you're like the executor of the state you are the guy that gets like the biggest portion of the inheritance like it's super super important they pull it off they trick Isaac into giving Jacob this blessing Esau finds out and Esau you know like you would he wants to kill his brother because he stole from him right So Jacob goes on the run. Jacob goes on a road trip. It's not a road trip on vacation. It's a road trip for his life. And this is where we find him. Like, this is the scene that we come upon. Jacob is on the run, and he finds a place that he thinks he can fall asleep, and he lays down to sleep and set up camp. And in this place, this fascinating encounter takes place where Jacob falls asleep and dreams of a led sapling song right ain't that cool um seriously by the way this is where stairway to heaven comes from just so you know right like very biblical you know rock band from the 70s anyway uh, this is one of the most remarkable visions of god that someone has in the bible there's these angels going up and down this this kind of like staircase and guys at the top and i cannot even imagine what it would have been like to to have that dream now What I want to bring to your attention is Jacob's reaction to the dream. So verse 16, he says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. He was also afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. You know, Jacob wakes up and he wonders the exact same thing that I think maybe you and I would wonder. Is there something special about this place that has allowed me to have this vision of God? As a matter of fact, when you keep reading, you know that that's what he's thinking about because of the very next thing that he does. So verse 18, the next morning, Jacob got up very early. He took the stone he had rested, he said against. Now remember, this is not like this like, I keep getting on Instagram the ads for the pillow cube. I don't know if you've seen it. It's like a little like, square that you can use to build. that's ridiculous. But anyway, this is not what's going on. What's going on is basically you would kind of like try to find a place to sort of like hide against animals at night. And it was like a big stone. So that's kind of like what he's describing. And he says, and he set it upright as a memorial pillar. Then he poured all- olive oil over it. He named that place Bethel. Which, by the way, Bethel worship, that's where it came from. Let's Zeppelin and worship music. That's a Bible for you guys, right there. Okay, Bethel means house of God, although it was previously called Luz. So, he sets up this place as a memorial, uh, probably for a couple reasons, right? One is that he wants to remember this very special moment, this very special vision that he has. But I read that, and I think that maybe there's something in Jacob that's like, you know... If I ever need to get a hold of God again, it seems that this place gets better reception, right? So he wants to set up some sort of marker to remember where that place is, so he can come back to that. Now you laugh at that, but when you go through like history of how ancient religions developed their sacred places, it's usually something like that. Like somebody, you know, was smoking ayahuasca and had a vision and now we have a temple there, right? And and, and I'm joking, but not really. Like a lot of the holy sites in ancient religions. Kind of like come from some sort of, like there was a special thing that happened here or somebody, things happened here. And that's why we built the temple in that place. It leads me to ask this question. I think it's a question that's important for humanity. And it's a question that occupies a lot of, of the mind of the writers of the scriptures. Where is God? If I were to ask you today, where where, where is God? And probably give me one or two answers. Well, God is omnipresent. God's everywhere, and that's true. But I wonder if a lot of us would also say, yeah, but I think he leases some office space in heaven, right? Like there there has some sort of throne room. Like there's some sort of actual setting where we think God lives and that when we pray and if we behave really well and we pray a lot, maybe like God, we can summon him. He can show up. To us. Now, what's interesting about that is that that actually goes completely counter to how you see God in the Scriptures, when you see God in the Scriptures. In the book of Genesis, the book we're in, if you go back to the very beginning, kind of like you have the story of creation, and then you have the story of the fall, that somehow something happens that kind of like separates humanity from God. The story is like this woman that it's, it's a fruit. And the very next section right after that story is this, Genesis 3, verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing... The man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. It would seem that part of what the biblical writers are trying to say is one of the main things that sin brings is the separation from this level of access to God's presence, to the reality of who God is, that was so normal that the writer can just say that God was walking around. An the implication there is that this was how God... God went for an evening stroll every day in the garden. Like, like that God was so accessible that it was the same thing as seeing somebody walk around in the garden. That's a level of you know, tangible presence of God and that somehow has a consequence of saying this is one of the things that sort of you know gets disrupted. But but if you keep reading through the Bible, what you're gonna see is that the idea is not that God packed up his bags and left, right? It's not that God said, okay, I'm done with humanity, I'm gonna get, you know, my angels and my things, I'm gonna go back to my to my least space offices in, you know, uh, mclean third heaven or whatever it is that got offices and leave you all to your own right and i'll show you an example for example there's uh, this is vision in the book of isaiah that the prophet isaiah has of the presence of god it says this isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 it was in the year king uzziah died that i saw the lord he was sitting on a lofty throne so this is vision of god's offices right and the train of his robe filled the temple attending him were mighty seraphim each having six wings. I don't know what that saw, sounds like X-Men, right? Two wings, they covered their faces. Two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And then it says, they were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. Then listen to the next line. The whole earth is filled with his glory. It would seem that part of the uh, Jewish understanding of the presence of God is that God is not just limited to his office space, or to his throne, or to his temple, but somehow the presence of God transcends time and space. Which is fascinating, because in the Jewish understanding of the presence of God, the key idea is the temple. Like, when they're in the desert, God tells them, build me this sanctuary, the tabernacle. It's like a tent, right? And then... If you keep reading, eventually that tent turns into a physical temple, the, the temple of Solomon, which you might might have heard of. It. And, and and for their minds, that's kind of like where God lived. Like that you had all these rituals that you had to go through, through to get in, and only like the, the priests once a year could go in to offer sacrifices very elaborate way of getting into God's presence. But there's a passage um in, in the book of Second Kings where Solomon is Dedicating this temple for the first time, this is what he uh, and he's dedicating the temple for, for the first time, and he says, First Kings eight twenty seven says, "But will God really live on earth? Why, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built?" So the Jewish idea, there's a sense of okay, we have this temple, but god's really not only in the temple god's everywhere the problem obviously is that god might be everywhere but we can't see him we can't access him so to speak there's this other story in second kings in second kings uh there's this prophet elisha and elisha uh you know at that time there's a, a nation um called Haram and and it's a nation that kind of like is an enemy of Israel and they keep trying to attack Israel and what the story says that every time the king of Haram tries to attack Israel God would give Elisha a vision and tell the king of Israel and the king and the people of Israel would be able to avoid the trap right and I was reading that this week and I was like Elisha was kind of like the first intelligence officer so for all you intelligence people that come here, it's a biblical job. Okay. Anyway, so Elijah, so, so the king of Aram says, okay, I'm gonna kill Elijah because this is the guy that's stopping me. He sends his armies, and the, the, the text in the scripture is that Elisha's servant wakes up one morning and they see that they're surrounded by these enemy armies. Let me read you this: Second Kings chapter 6, verse 15. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir. What will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Now, I don't want to get super sci-fi-ish or like whatever here, but it would seem that part of the Jewish understanding of the spiritual realm, the realm where kind of like the invisible realm, us somehow how the, sometimes the Bible talks about it, where God resides. It's not someplace else, somewhere else. It seems to be right here. And like Jacob, part of the problem seems to be that we're not aware of it. That on our own, we cannot make ourselves aware of it. That we cannot just close our eyes and clench our fists hard enough or be holy enough. And one time we just open and then all of a sudden we can see the realm where God resides. However, I want to show you something. Go with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, So the Word, meaning Jesus, Became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. The Gospel of John starts talking about Jesus, and the first thing that he says is that the, the word says became human, but then he says and made his home. The original language for that line, made his home, is actually like literally like pitched up, set up his tent. It's the same language that you read in the book of Exodus when God tells the people of Israel, make a tent for me where I would live among my people. It's almost like the writer of uh, the Gospel of John is saying, this Jesus seems to somehow do the same thing that the temple was supposed to do, of bringing the presence of God And make it accessible to us. However, there's a difference. Because in the Old Testament, to get into a temple... Again, it's not like you could get into a temple. The one high priest that was like a lineage thing could get once a year after going through this purification ritual. And if not, he could die. And everybody else could like hang around and bring their offerings and see some smoke coming out of the room. That's about it, right? But this Jesus is not like that. It's a person. A person that apparently talks to other people, that walks with other people, that hang, hangs out with other people. I love how Eugene Peterson in the message translates that verse because he says this, John 1, 14, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus comes into the world and it's not like he sets up his tent in a special place that's far, or, far off and hard to access. It's not like going into a federal building, like going to the White House. It's not like you have to get a background check and have to know a congressman to get you a tour or whatever. No. He seems to move in next door to you. And he doesn't mind if you knock on at 3 a.m. and ask for a cup of sugar. And we know that because that's what he does. He goes into the world. Jesus becomes a walking temple, Right? It's the presence of God going from town to town in the province of Judea and people can touch him and people can get healed from him. And I, I am, right now I'm reading through the Gospel of Mark and the beginning of the Gospel of Mark is all these stories about Jesus performing miracles and, and there's this passage where he's like, and so many people just got close to him and grabbed his garment and were healed. Because the level of access to the presence of God that Jesus comes to bring seems to be such That all of a sudden, anyone that can get close to Jesus can get close to God. However, let me show you something else. Same chapter of John, go almost to the end of the chapter, verse 51. So what happens is John starts with this poem of the Word becoming flesh. And then he just starts telling how Jesus starts his ministry and recruits followers. And at the end of that recruitment process, Jesus gives his speech. John one fifty one. Then he said, I tell you the truth. Listen to this. You will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man. The one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Where have we heard that before? Jesus is quoting the passage from Jacob that we read in the book of Genesis. Jesus is quoting the story. He says, you remember how Jacob has his dream about the presence of God. And he says, surely God is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. Jesus says this fascinating idea that he kind of like merges geography and presence. And Jesus is saying... I'm the place. When Jacob is having this dream, he sees a stairway. He's like, this, there's this, this place is the house of God and the gate to heaven. What does Jesus say? I'm the house of God. And they get to him. And when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, when Jesus says, you know, I am the, the, the bread of life, when Jesus says that you can only get to the fire without me, he's not being this kind of like exclusivist, anti other religious things. All he's saying is, I'm it. I'm the place. I'm, I'm, you want to see God, you have to come to me. You have to have access to me. Now, what's fascinating though is that there is also this connection, if you think about it, that Jesus is making that somehow, because Jesus coming into the world, it's almost like this veil between God and humanity has been lifted, and we can have easier access to the presence of God. And I know that because it's in the Bible. So, Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 27, as Jesus is dying, verse 50, then Jesus shouted again, and he released his spirit. Verse 51, at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Remember the idea that we talked about that, that for the Jewish people God lived in this temple, in this house, right? And that somehow the holiest part of the temple is like the most important place that only the priest could go in once a year, and it was really hard. And the first thing that happens when Jesus dies is that that breaks open. There's two implications to that. One implication, obviously, is that we can come in. You know, we sang a song. Come to the altar. We can come in before God's presence, without being afraid. But I think, without t- trying to sound too, too sacrilegious, sacri- that it also means that God can come out. What I mean by that is not that God's like you know hidden in there and doesn't want to hang out with people. Actually, I, part of what I think it means is that this level of accessibility to the presence of God that you see in the Book of Genesis, where God just walks around the garden. That somehow, because of what Jesus has done, the possibility for that level of access is real one more time. That we can come before the presence of God. Um, And the reason why I'm telling you this is because I think that that has implications for our lives. You know, like we're going into this summertime, and a lot of times what happens in the summer so we kinda of like put God in the backseat. Not intentionally. It's not like, oh, somewhere saying I'm gonna be like a hidden pig, and although some people do. But but it's more like, okay, I have all these trips and I have family coming from out of town and I'm waking later. And a lot of the things that kind of like hold up your spiritual life, like, you know, like, or life groups are not meeting. So that was one thing that kind of like drew you closer to God every week. That's not happening right now. You're traveling, so like. Church attendance becomes like a little bit spottier. And I've seen it happen sometimes. It's kind of like this. It's not like you walk away from God. It's almost like you forget about Him, right? And then you wake up and it's October. And I think that part of the reason for that is because sometimes we think in the same way that Jacob thinks when he builds this kind of like pillar and anoints it with oil. And he's basically thinking that the main element of this vision, this experience that he has with God, is about location right he's like there's better reception here so we come to church why because there's better reception here right like gary's singing the songs and joel is preaching with exotic accent i feel the presence of god right okay oh or like you are in your small group and you feel like this closeness is fellowship with people it becomes a little bit easier to believe in god doesn't it it becomes a little bit easier to hear from God. So like there's better reception in these settings. And when we're away from these settings, we feel like the reception kind of like them's. But what if what Jacob's saying is also true? That surely God is in this place, and by this place, he means the thing that the angels, the seraphim say in, in Isaiah, the whole earth. And I just wasn't aware of it. What if God's actually present to you everywhere you go and everywhere you are, whether you are at church or not, whether you're in a small group or not, where you listen to like the latest worship song or not, that the presence of God is accessible if you could just become aware of it? All I want to tell you is that I think that the summer in particular, offers us opportunities to become aware of it for a couple of reasons. One is this, that normally, because, okay, let's be honest for a second, right? This, I believe in this. I'm preaching it. I think it got present everywhere. When I'm on 495 at 4 p.m., I don't think surely God's in this place and I wasn't aware of it. I think the other guy is in this place, right? Because he's like, I'm so angry and upset and there's all this traffic, Right? So, so a lot of times what happens is like in your normal everyday life, all these things are so sort of like conspiring against our attention, and we can't see, we can't become aware. And what if these next nine weeks are a gift from God, an opportunity from God for you to slow down a little bit and become aware? What well, I invite you this morning is into the I'm calling it the spiritual exercise of reclaiming wonder i want to invite you today to reclaim wonder i'll just make you think of two things and we'll close with this um think about my, my story of my trip to cuenca i'm going up on this car it's the middle of the night but what happens to me is that god's knock up on me and god's knock up on me on something that's incredibly beautiful but it's also kind of like incredibly ordinary it's just stars right We all see them. Well, here's a lot of like, you know, side pollution is harder. But like if you were kind of like in more places closer to nature, you all see them, right? They're there. It's like something normal. And sometimes we forget how incredibly beautiful it can be. I don't know if you remember um, last year when the first images of the Webb Telescope came out. I was obsessed with this image of like the stars being born, right? And I looked at it and I was like, that seems like Photoshop. Like, and I know it's like a composite of all these different frequency images that we take, but that's kind of like the best thing that we can come up to make it to the eyes like what is out there. And I remember when that image was making the rounds that the first thing I thought was of this passage in the book of Isaiah. And I actually found the, the, the Facebook post I made of it where, where, where Isaiah says, Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the stereo host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, no one of them is missing. What, what made that moment so powerful to me when I'm making this road trip in the middle of the night, looking at the night sky, that something kind of like pierced that veil between heaven and earth and just made me aware, God made that. And the summer affords you all these numbers of opportunities to interact with nature. Perhaps the most spiritual thing you can do this summer is go for a walk in a park. Or go for a hike. Or just slow down enough to look around and realize God is in this place. I just wasn't aware of it. One of my favorite writers is a guy named J.K. Chesterton. J.K. Chesterton starts kind of like as an atheist. And he writes this book called Orthodoxy, talking about some of the reasons why he became a Christian. And one of the reasons that he points out to nature, he says this, The repetition in nature seems sometimes to be an excited repetition, like that of an angry schoolmaster saying the same thing over and over again. The grass seems signaling to me with all its fingers at once. The crowded stars seemed bent upon being understood. The sun would make me see him if he rose a thousand times. The recurrences of the universe rose to the maddening rhythm of an incantation, and I began to see an idea. This is the idea, a few paragraphs down. It might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to a lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children. When they find some game or joke that they especially enjoy, a child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. None of us here have experienced that. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalting monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalting monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisies separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. And This is one of my favorite lines in the English language. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. What if this summer God is inviting you to reclaim wonder? To look around at the world that he has made and say, surely God was in this place and I wasn't aware of it. Um, one of my favorite writers is a guy named Dallas Willard. I'm not read another long quote, don't worry. Uh, and Dallas Willard... Uh, In 2012, he wrote a lot about spiritual disciplines and whatnot. And in 2012, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And and after hearing the diagnosis, he said this. He says, I think that when I die, it might be some time until I know it. And i got to be honest with you, I'm annoyed at that line. It sounds like he's like he's thinking i'm more spiritual than you people right like i'm like every time i pray i'm like levitating into heaven and i'm seeing the angels so when i die it's just like another day and oh i'm dead already I didn't know and makes me feel like i can never attain that as i was preparing for the sermon i thought to myself what if that's not what he means and what i think is this what if what he means is this um have you been on a road trip Having the best conversation of your life, maybe it's with a loved one or a family member, a friend that you haven't caught in a time, and you're just talking and you're reminiscing and you're talking and you were supposed to get to this place at a certain time. You're going to have lunch or whatever. And before you realize you've gotten there like 10 minutes ago and you were just sitting in the parking lot talking because you didn't want the conversation to end. And you're like, oh, we got here. I have a hunch. That was Dallas Willard, man, was, listen, I'm not more spiritual than anybody else. It's just, I hang out with Jesus so much. I see the presence of Jesus everywhere I go. I'm so fixated on Jesus that I'm not sure that if I die, like, I would be more fixated. Like, I would just still be talking to him. And before I realized, I would look around like, oh, we're here. And what I'm telling you is that I don't think that that's just available to Jacob. And I don't think that's just available to Dallas Willard. And I don't think that's just available to Jackie Chesterton. I think that's available to you. And I think that's available to me. That if Jesus, if this walking temple came into the world and moved into the neighborhood, that God wants to have that level of intimacy and relationship with you. And God's inviting you to slow down, open your eyes, and realize that surely God is in this place. And by this place I mean church, but by this place I mean your house, and your place of work, and your car, and wherever you go on vacation, and wherever you go from now on. You're just aware and aware of it.